Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Throughout each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone, and that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We cultivate leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. David S. Ritzma. Dr. Ritzma has served as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church at Waxahachie since 2012. He has taught on the faculty in the Graduate School of Ministry at Dallas Baptist University, the Doctoral of Ministry at Truett Seminary at Baylor University, and as a resident fellow at B.H. Carroll Theological Seminary, where he also serves on the Board of Governors. He holds a B.A. in Christian Ministry from East Texas Baptist University, an MDiv in Theology from Truett Seminary, and a Ph.D. in New Testament from B.H. Carroll Theological Seminary. He has been serving in church ministry since 1997, including five pastorates in Texas. He regularly writes for GC2 and has a book called Fearless. He is an active member of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Evangelical Theological Society, and the Institute of Biblical Research. Without further ado, Dr. David S. Ritzma. All right. It's amazing when you get an introduction like that, you kind of wonder who they're talking about. Uh, you know, it's an honor and privilege for me to be here with you today. I wouldn't be here without the, uh, the invitation of your president and an opportunity to get to know him. Um, I don't know how many months ago it was, Dr. Hardage, but you had him at the, uh, at the BGCT and invited uh, me and some other pastors to come and just kind of sit around and, and hear about an incredible vision and heart that he has here at Criswell College. I was impressed, and I became a follower. I follow him also, his podcast, and I've, in, I've enjoyed uh, listening to him, and I'm learning a lot, and I'm seeing God at work here at Criswell. It's, it's great for me to be here. It's an honor for me to be here. By the way, Luis does a great job of making you feel really, really welcome, and uh, he even said that he's going to take me to eat a barbecue for lunch, and so I'm really excited about that. But, you know, it's really kind of hard to figure out what you're going to talk about in chapel, uh, I don't know if you'd want to think for a moment if you were me and you had to get up here and what would you say? It's kind of it's hard to think about what you would say in a setting like this. Uh, Sunday at my church I pastor, uh, because we do two services, we have a classic service with a choir and orchestra and all that, and then we have our blacked out, you know, contemporary worship service. I go in my office, I pull down all the shades, and I change my clothes. I go from a suit and tie into some jeans and, you know, who knows, some kind of shirt or something. But the only person that's ever in there during that experience, and rarely, but sometimes, is my wife. And she was, she was in there, and, and she just made this comment to me. She said, um, she was looking at my office. I got all these books, you know. And she, she noticed that in my office that I don't have my diplomas. I don't have my Ph.D. I don't have my MDiv. I don't have my undergraduate. I have my high school diploma. And, and she said to me, she said, You're the, you are the only pastor, you know, academic kind of guy that would ever put his high school diploma in his office. And I said, Kristen, you have to remember that my mom didn't graduate from high school and that my older brother did not graduate from high school and that the hardest and the greatest accomplishment of my life was to graduate from high school. 
I grew up inside the, on, behind the Pine Curtain in East Texas. Uh, I didn't grow up in a small town. I grew up in the country outside of a small town. Uh, by, by small, I mean a thousand people. I never in a million years thought that God would call me to ministry, that I'd be a pastor or that I would serve. Most days I, I think to myself, I don't know how I got here anyway. But one of the things I look back on in that moment and that why that diploma is in my office is because I told myself that if I could get that high school diploma, that I could get my college diploma. And I look back on that and I find this thing, I think it's this biblical concept, it's called hope. This idea that says, like, I can do that because of this idea of hope. It kind of reminds me of the, I don't know, the, the baseball game. The kids are sitting there in the, the dugout and they're watching the other team go up to bat. And it's one run, it's five runs, it's ten runs, it's home runs. And you're starting to watch as the score kind of gets away. And the players start to say to the coach, I think, uh, I think we should just leave now. And one of the guys is anxious and excited. He's got his bat in his hand, and he's, he's ready to go. And they're like, hey, don't you think this game's over? And he says, nope, we haven't gotten up to bat yet. Well, somebody might look at a person like that, and you may know that old joke, and say, that's ridiculous. But the truth is, we've watched enough games to see when the odds were stacked against, and then the end, a total victory. A comeback. I love a great comeback. It makes me wonder, what if we could go into the future and then look back, rewind the tape, and see how things turn out? How that might inspire us to believe that we can get out there and we can do it, we can get it done. When I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about something that Peter wrote about. And I decided to talk about Peter today because... The first time I ever scratched out a sermon on Peter, I was right where you are. I was an undergraduate. I was in my second year of New Testament Greek, and we had to translate 1 Peter. And I worked through the first chapter of 1 Peter, and I remember reading about the historical context, about how these Christians were scattered all over northern Asia Minor. How they became a Christian, nobody really knows. They may have become Christians because Paul came through South Galatia and shared the gospel. Or they might have been there on Pentecost when Peter stood up. And that's when I stop and I think a little bit about Peter, the guy that was a fisherman, became a follower, the guy that was, I'll never leave you, and then the night of Jesus' arrests, denied him three times, the guy that when the crucifixion took place was hiding out in the upper room, worrying that the same thing might happen to him, and then something amazing happens when a few days later he stands up at Pentecost and he proclaims a message in front of an audience of thousands in which he was convinced that Jesus, who had died on the cross, had really been raised from the dead. Partly because he had raced to the tomb to see that it was empty and then with Thomas reaching out maybe to perhaps touch the place where the nail marks had been or where the spear had been, realized that Jesus was alive and so he stood up and he proclaimed that message at Pentecost. And thousands, thousands were baptized. Some of them may have been the people who would read 1 Peter, the letter he would write to. He would say in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles, 
scattered. The Greek is diaspora. It's like the throwing out of a seed into the ground. It was used of the Jewish people throughout history. They are a scattered people from Babylonian exiles to the modern exiles. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To us, those names mean nothing if they said things like, I don't know, Dallas, Fort Worth, Arlington, Waco, San Antonio. They would mean something to us. They meant something to them. They knew these places. Peter, who's writing this down, or perhaps a scribe at Amanuensis is writing this down. He's sitting in Rome where he awaits perhaps his own death and says these things. To these provinces, to these people who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Christ Jesus and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. All of that sounds real normal. All of that sounds like the kind of stuff you just read about in the New Testament. But then when you stop and you think about the context this letter is written in, these Christians are scattered in a part of the world where as followers of Jesus, they were probably, some of them, Jews converted into the Christian faith, and so they became ostracized by their Jewish communities. Their families rejected them. Uh, their, their, their families no longer would associate with them because of their Christian faith. Uh, Paul experienced something like that. If you read Tom Wright's beautiful biography of Paul, he says that Paul... Uh, Paul's wife that he was betrothed very likely divorced him over his conversion to Christian faith. The, the reminder that, 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 that faith was ripping people and communities apart, that faith was hard to have, that faith was difficult in the circumstances that they were in. But Peter is written in the midst of a Roman Empire in which Christians begin to become ostracized and criticized. I'm glad that we Christians living in America don't have to deal with any of that. <laughs> The truth is, of course, that we are growing in an increasingly secular society. Go read Charles Taylor as he helps us think about what it means to be secular and to be Christian in a secular world. We're living in the midst of a, of a massive de-churching. Go read Jim Davis's book about 40 million adults who in the last few years have left the church in an entire generation that is maybe going to leave the church and never come back. We are experiencing a transformation of our culture here in this country, and being a Christian is actually more challenging and will be more challenging than ever before. And so, like never before, we need to be reading 1 Peter, written in the midst of that context. And what strikes me is what Peter says here at the opening of this letter. It always has, eulogetos hatheos, Greek for Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word praise, uh, eulogetos, in the original language is where we get our word eulogy. You go to a funeral and somebody eulogizes them. Eu, logos, means good word. To speak a good word over someone. I think if I were <laughs> writing this letter, I was suffering like these early Christians were suffering. I was like Peter writing to them, sitting in Rome, perhaps getting ready to die. I might not have written that. I might have might wanted to have written something else like, man, this is hard. I didn't sign up for this. But what he says is, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins to explain why. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's hard to praise God in hard times. 
it, it's hard to, to find uh, the place to praise God when life is most difficult. There's a, a story uh, I read about years ago in Arizona. Somebody was retiring and bought a farm, moved out there. It was their dream to live out the rest of their lives on this farm. They were going to build it, take care of it. There was a barn, there was a hen house, there were crops. One night a big storm came. Everything was destroyed, everything was devastated. Barn was knocked down, fields were ruined by the, the hail and the wind and the, the rain. The hen house was nothing but a big pile of rubble with dead chickens laying everywhere. Only a few uh, remained. One was a bony old rooster with hardly a feather left on him. This farmer who surveyed the damage that was his life and livelihood looked at that rooster and watched as it began to crawl to the top of that pile of rubble. And as the sun came over the horizon that morning, it lifted its head toward heaven and it let out a mighty cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> and the farmer realized there was a reason to praise God. Like the rooster that survived the storm, these early Christians have found a reason. What if we could find reasons to praise God? Well, he says here we can praise him because of his great mercy. I love the word mercy. Somebody said that grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. When I was a kid, I didn't get a lot of mercy from my parents. I wish I'd had more mercy. But when it comes to God, God has given us great mercy. And he begins to describe this. He says it is given uh, to us in this idea of new birth. Uh, the word new birth is so important in the New Testament. Remember Nicodemus came to Jesus one night and he was a religious leader and Jesus said to him, you have to become born again. I read that so many years and I never understood that. I never understood what, why Jesus said that to Nicodemus. And then later I would study and realize that, that Nicodemus was a person who believed that his Jewish heritage, his natural ethnic birth, guaranteed him access into the kingdom of God. And that Jesus was saying to him, you cannot rest on your religious pedigree to get you in. Even you have to experience new birth. Now that was a hard message for the Jewish community, but for everyone who was a Gentile, it was the good news. Because it meant that it didn't matter who you were or what you were or what you were before, that when you came to faith in Christ, everybody was at the same starting place. And everyone got in the same way because of the mercy of God. Everyone would get a new beginning in Christ. And then all of this in this verse is just pushing toward a verse, toward a word, toward a concept. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. There's that word, living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter knew this. If there was ever a, a person who had reason for hope, it was Peter. Because he had seen Jesus alive. He was convinced the, the man who was hiding out and denying him would become the, 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 his, one of his greatest proponents, his, one of his greatest preachers. He, he would be imprisoned for professing his faith in Jesus. 
It's unquestionably one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection of Jesus. If you go and study apologetics, you'll find that the transformation of the character of Peter still serves as one of the greatest evidences of the truth of of the Christian faith. You can't explain Christianity without trying to unpack the reality that Peter's life was changed. How could a guy go from hiding and denying to believing and then dying for his faith? He had hope. But his hope was not just that he was going to get through life without troubles or difficulties or challenges. He had a living hope through what he called the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, Thomas Watson, a writer of years gone by, once said that um, a Christian is more assured to rise from their grave than they are to rise from their bed tomorrow. Uh, The truth is, is tomorrow we may not wake up. But if our life is hidden with Christ in God, then we will share and partake in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The assurance of that is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. As as Tom Wright said, what was supposed to happen in the end started happening in the now. The future resurrection was happening in the present, and they were all amazed by what was taking place. Thomas Jefferson Um, one time got a copy of the Bible, you'll remember this, and cut out all of the miracle stories. Congress called it, I guess, the Jefferson Bible. (laughs) It's interesting if you've ever read it. I've got a copy of it in my my office. You read uh, the the life of Jesus. You get all the way to the end of the life of the Jesus, and and, and it, it ends with his death, and it says, and then they took him to the place of the sepulcher, meaning the grave, And there they departed. Jefferson's Bible ends with with the death of Jesus. It it ends without any seemingly sense of hope. Our Bible doesn't end like that. Like the hymn writer that said, Up from the tomb he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Paul would write that if Christ was raised from the dead, we will rise from the dead. It is the inspiring hope of the New Testament. It's how a tiny faith of a few hundred, a few thousand in number, would transform the Roman world. And it is still true today. In a great secular culture, in in an evangelical de-churching of the church, The greatest hope of the world is found in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that living hope gives us reason to praise God. Billy Graham uh, once used an illustration that Peter uses in this passage. He goes on and he talks about how we are kept by God and how we are safe by God and how we are held by God in this passage. Uh, Graham uh, described a, a bird in a hurricane along the shores of the, of the ocean. As the big storm came moving in, the, the bird was found a little place to hide out. While the hurricane made its way onto the shore, I mean the wind, the waves, it's the stuff that all the news stations would want to be out there with watching it as people get blown over in destruction. And he said the bird was sleeping they're in the cleft of the rock. It's the kind of, kind of image that we find here that these Christians could find this peace, this, this resolve, this, 
this determination that no matter what was happening around them, that they were safe in God. Peter ends this section. I don't have time to read all 12 verses to you. It's actually all one sentence in the original Greek, by the way, verses 3 through 12. He ends by talking about rejoicing greatly. And he says one of the reasons that he rejoices and one of the reasons that we can rejoice in the midst of whatever we face in life is because he says our suffering is for a little while. That uh, no matter what you go through in life, uh, it's going to end. I think about that every time I go to the dentist. (sighs) This is going to end eventually. Nobody said, oh, I want to pay a little bit extra for a little bit more time. We can't wait for it to be over. And Peter says, it will be. When Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth, he said, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. I've come to see in my life that seeing the difference between the temporal and the eternal changes everything. Whatever challenges you face in college, whatever challenges you face in life, in the reality, in the grand scheme of things, if you could fast forward all the way to the end and look back and look back with hope and be able to see things from the eternal perspective, you would see it so differently. Robert Louis Stevenson was an author and wrote Treasure Island, but he was also a poet. He said, the stars shine over the mountains and the stars shine over the sea. The stars shine up to the mighty God, and the stars look down on me. The stars will last for a million years, a million and a day. But God and I will live in love when the stars have passed away. What if we could see backwards our lives and live now with the hope of the resurrection how it would change everything how it would change how you do college how it would change how you do life how it would change everything there's one last thing that Peter mentions in this passage I didn't have time to get into but he deals a little bit with suffering And he compares the suffering that you and I go through in life to gold being refined in fire. Which, if you kind of think about it, it's kind of an awful process to make gold. You have to burn all the impurity out of it. But the way Peter describes it is he says it's... That's what your faith does. It's like gold refined in a fire. It it increases the value of it. And the truth is, it won't last forever. One of the great artists, and I've had the opportunity to learn about him in college, was the French Impressionist artist Renoir. If you've ever seen one of his paintings, honestly, they don't look that great. I mean, let's be honest. In fact, they almost look like the, the man didn't know how to paint. But that's the way the French Impressionist painters did it. That doesn't stop his paintings from selling for half a million to a million dollars or being the subject of massive art exhibits. 
But something that I learned about Renoir changed everything for me. I learned that, that, that this fantastic artist painted under great pain. To hold a brush in hand for an artist suffering with rheumatoid arthritis was excruciatingly painful. In fact, he did everything that he could to alleviate the pain, and yet painting this beautiful art that he had was excruciating for him. And yet today, his paintings are so well-known and so well-liked. One time, somebody asked Renoir the question, why do you do it if it hurts so much? And he said this. He said, the pain passes but the beauty remains. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. It's true, isn't it? Renoir is not suffering anymore, but today the art appreciation of his work is known around the world. What if that was true of your life, my life? The, the hardships and the, the difficulties, though for a little while we go through them, would result in what Peter calls here the praise, glory, and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ on the day that he visits us. You know what? If we could look back at a tape, we would say, the pain passes, the beauty remains. I remember when I told my grandmother I was going to go to seminary. I said, Grandma, I don't know, it's going to be like three years of school. She said, I'm 90 years old. I don't think three years is that long. <laughs> Paul wrote this, Romans 1, 8, uh, Romans 8, 1, 8, uh, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Would you pray with me? Father, I don't know what each person in this room is going through in the midst of their studies, in the midst of their academic life, in the midst of their personal life. I don't know what faculty or other people here are doing in the midst of all that are going on with them. But Lord, I know that you know. I know that you care. And I also know, Lord, that if we could look back over it all and see it with that grand perspective we would see that the sufferings of today are worth it they're doing something they're achieving something that they matter and even in the midst of it even in the midst of it and maybe even because of the midst of it today we honor you we praise you we rejoice in you our living hope in Jesus name Amen. Y'all please join me in thanking Dr. Ritzema for the message. Amen. Thank you, brother. And you can have a seat right there and just want to have a, an opportunity to ask you a couple of questions. And if you all have a question, uh, flag down uh, Diaseling. I see it back there with a the microphone. Uh, she'll get it to you to ask your question. Uh, the question I want to ask you first, you can, this, is a, this is an optional question. So you can just defer on this or you can respond with anything you want, uh, however you'd like to. But you brought up the departure from the church that's going on. You mentioned some statistics, the number of uh, people who've left the church, 4 million or something like that. Yeah, it's 40 million, 40 million adults. Yeah, yeah. It's, the greatest, it's the greatest exodus of the church. If you took, if you took the, 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 the Great Awakening, first and second Great Awakenings, 
and then you added all the people that were converted during the Billy Graham Crusades, you put it all together, it's still not as many people who have left the church in the last couple of decades. Wow. Okay. So what I want to ask you is this, and it's uh, in tune with your, with your message, actually, because in the same way that they're suffering for individuals, they're suffering for the body as well. And so I'm curious if you can read that. And again, this is an optional question. Do with it whatever you want. Uh, but I'm curious if you can look at that and say, we know the negative side of that. We know the pain that comes from that and the loss and the huge harm that is to the body, to those individuals, you know, to the gospel and so on. Is there any positive side? And I know, again, it was, I, I don't know how you want to answer it, but you know what I mean? There's a wonderful positive side. Okay. You know, I just did this series last, last year called, the, the, uh, you know, about the church in crisis. And the, the positive side is that of the 40 p- million people who've left the church in the past few decades, 51% say that they would return to church if someone would invite them. Huh. That in and of itself is extraordinary. That many of the people who've left church have left church for various reasons, and coming back, they need, a, 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 they need someone there to invite them to create opportunity. But then they also need to be in a place where the church is... Um, a safe place to, to, for them to explore and learn. That one of the things Jim Davis talks about in his book is he talks about creating a front door uh, for the church, a church creating a front door for people who are de-church coming into the church where they have an opportunity, many of them, to hear and experience the gospel for the, really for the very first time. Even though they've left the church, they may never have really understood what it meant to be a Christian. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. So love to hear that. Uh, oh, so your church is a great church, growing church, growing community that you're in. I mean, thriving. You have a great reputation. I'm saying that for the benefit of everybody out here. You know, I know that, and I know you're, you're deferential about it, whatever. But the point, we appreciate your humility. But the point is, uh, great things are happening at your church. The Lord's done good things there. I'd just be curious if you would describe for us some way you've seen the hand of the Lord move in your church that made it obvious that God was at work in your ministry or your church. Yeah. Well, you know, I came to I came to First Baptist Waxahachie because David Hardage was the interim pastor of the church, and uh, he got a job as the executive director of the Baptist General Convention, and he asked me to 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 consider coming and I prayed about it and really felt God leading me to come. The church had been in downtown Waxahachie since 1861, so one of the oldest churches. Uh, had gone through some really difficult times, quite an upheaval, had lost most of its young families and anything like that. And I remember I got to the church, and one of the first things people said to me was, this church will never relocate, whatever you do. We voted on this, and we'll never do that. Well, of course, you know, a few years ago, in 2019, we opened up our new, you know, $20 million campus and, you know, built a whole new thing. And so we have seen a transformation and revitalization of the church, you know. Um, we've seen so many new people. We've, we've created new ministries and uh, grown significantly. Right now, as I was this morning getting ready to come over here, dirt is moving as we're paving the way of 200 new parking spaces just so more people can come. And so a lot is happening uh, in spite of what's happening uh, in, you know, in, the, in the culture and in the community. I absolutely believe, and I say this all the time to the church, that it doesn't really matter what's happening culturally. People are just people. And if I know you and you know me, and you have this place where you really love the, love the community and the faith that's happening there, and you invite me to be a part of that, and I also discover that, I'm going to become a part of the church. So I think the key is trying to create the cultures that people want to be a part of that are real, living uh, you know, cultures of Christ, and then creating in people a desire to bring people into their lives and, and, and be a part of that. Amen. I uh, haven't given anybody a chance out here. You got a question? Okay. 
Yes, sir. Sai? Hello. <laughs> Hi, sir. Um, my question is, so when you got up this morning, um, what was what was your thought process when you woke up this morning? Like, if you could answer honestly, like yeah. what, what, what went through your mind when you got up this morning? You know, knowing your context, knowing what you're going to do today. Yeah, no, I mean, today was a really, it was a great day, actually, because the kids were out of school today, so I didn't have to get up and make breakfast and do all the normal <laughs> stuff. It was really a beautiful day. You know, the first thing I have to do after I get everything ready for everybody in the morning, I get, I've got five kids, so there's a lot going on there, is I got to get to the gym. And so, uh, you know, that was one of, the, one of the main things, just to get out the door and get to the gym. But actually, this morning I picked up, I, I, this is my NIV Greek, but I have my UBS Greek right beside my bed, and I picked it up. And I read through First Peter in, in, in Greek. That's kind of how I started my, my morning this morning, even before I drank coffee, which is really, you know, unusual for me. So. <laughs> Squeezing in the coffee, by yeah, the that's way. Right, so, that's right. yeah, uh, the unusual coffee. So what's the unusual thing you did today? Oh, uh, yeah, I picked up my Greek Bible and read First Peter. That was an unusual uh, you know, didn't feed my five kids. That wasn't unusual. <laughs> but I did drink coffee. That was unusual. So good question, Sai. I appreciate that. Anybody else have a question you want to ask before I ask my question? Yeah. Can we get the mic down here, Diosley? Thank you. And I know we can hear you, but we like for everybody else to hear you too. So, yeah. Hello. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, my question is in relation to suffering and because there's um, types of suffering where it's, it's causes such as um, cancer or, or anything like that. But then there's a type of suffering that I think is caused by our own foolishness and sinfulness. So how do we deal with that type of suffering that we ourselves cause in our lives? Well, I mean, it's true that you know, in First Peter, he's not specifically dealing with the kinds of things that we do ourselves, right? You know, he's not thinking of that. He's really addressing the context of Christ, being a Christian in an environment. Uh, I, I wrote a commentary on First Peter, and so I got to spend some a lot of time in the sort of the Roman context of these cities that are kind of in the north of you know what's Galatia, Galatia or Asia Minor. And, and these Christians began to get persecuted by Romans who began to insult them, publicly insult them, insult their faith. Um, you know, one of the things that early Christians got labeled, which is always so strange to us today, is they were called atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods. And so, I mean, to me, it's like bizarre to think of calling a Christian an atheist. But in Rome, you're an atheist because you, you don't even have a god. Where's your god? Where's your idol? You don't even believe in idols? And then, and then you talk about this Lord who was crucified and so on. So being a Christian was extraordinarily difficult. I'm trying to think of people who dealt with personal suffering. If you want to find an example of someone who really seems to be dealing with personal suffering, it might be Paul in 2 Corinthians, and it might be his reference to the thorn in the flesh, you know, where he talks about God giving him this thorn in the flesh, and he asks multiple times for God to remove it, but God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, and so God reveals to him, like, hey, you can get through this because I'm giving you the strength to get through this, and so if I'm somebody who is dealing with, you know, a really dark and difficult diagnosis, or every day is a struggle for me, um, I'm every day asking God to give me the grace to get through this, Good. Thank you very much. Good question. Yeah, excellent. Uh, anybody else want to ask a question right now? Or I'll pitch in mine. 
Uh, if I can follow up on that question with you real quickly, I, I'm going to follow up and just make a statement. You can, you can add to it or not, and then I'll ask you another question. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me about the suffering that we bring on ourselves or uh, the suffering that we experience individually, like you were talking about the thorn in the flesh, or we think of Job in the Old Testament, is that uh, we, we always just think of how to end the suffering as if God weren't sovereign, as if you know, it couldn't have, as if it, it, you know, it happened without God being aware of it. And if we can just get his attention, he'll bring the end of suffering. Where I think scripture's constantly dragging us to a point similar to what you were bringing up today as a community, but he's constantly dragging us to a point of understanding what he wants to use us for to bring redemption to others or to bring redemption to our community or to do something different in us and them. Uh, rather than just overcoming the suffering. So where we say, can the suffering end, I think we're supposed to say, what's going to make me better as a result, you know, of this suffering? Because he didn't have to allow it to happen. Anyway, do you want to add anything to that? Or? I, you know, I think that the New Testament, especially, you know, we call it the general epistles or Catholic epistles, says so much about this. You, know, you think about something like Hebrews chapter 12, it comes on the heels of the great hall of faith or whatever. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, yeah. scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the majesty. So I think what's fascinating is these early Christians saw in Jesus and by the way, Peter does this as well. The whole suffering theme runs through the life of Jesus. They found great encouragement that Jesus suffered, and so they could endure suffering as well. Yeah. Amen. Nice. Uh, one more question uh, that I want to ask. Anybody else? Last chance? Okay. Oh, we do have one. Diaseling? Uh Straight back. There you go. Right in the middle. Hey, uh, how, how do you think uh, like a third great awakening could happen? Like, what, how could we start that? Or what do you think could, how could we like bring the gospel to people that are running away from it? You know, something that's interesting, I'm just thinking about Jim Davis's book, The Great Dechurching, is he actually reveals something that I didn't realize, that in early America, when America was first founded, a very tiny percentage of people actually went to church. Very, very few people went to church. Uh, and then during the Great Awakenings, uh, the percentage went up just a little bit. And in fact, in the mid-1900s, more people were going to church historically than ever before in the history of the whole country. Uh, huge, huge percentages and numbers of people were going to the church. Um, I think the question is, you know, were these people who were going to church genuinely spiritually transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I think part of the question of revivals and movements like that is, is, is are we really building big crowds or are we building the church? You know, are we building huge followers and fans or are we building real disciples of Jesus? And I, and, and I think that there's no way that you can fully explain the origin of early Christianity apart from a movement of the Holy Spirit. So you have in, you know, you have in Peter, I don't think Peter woke up that morning thinking that afternoon, you know, he, he wasn't reading First Peter when he wrote, woke up on, you know, in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost and thinking 3,000 people that he was going to spend the whole day, you know, baptizing in a mikvah in, in the city of Jerusalem. He didn't anticipate that. I don't think we do either. And I don't know that the 
I'm not sure that, that there's the thing that we do to make that happen other than we're faithful and hope and pray that it happens, you know, in our time. I will say, having spent time in China with the pastors there, that God is doing that in other parts of the world, you know, particularly in Africa, uh, many parts of Asia. There are great revivals and great awakenings happening. Um, they're not happening in this country, which I think is a lot of times the question. And I think maybe we need to get at the heart of why our culture is, is, is so anti-gospel, really, at its, very, you know, at its very heart. Yeah, good, 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 good point. And uh, I, it is funny that it's hard not to center things around us. Not that you're doing that in your question, but I mean, uh, it's hard for us not to do that. Uh, I want to ask you one last question and uh, you know, sort, of, sort of brief answer, but, uh, but, you know, as much time as you need to take. So you mentioned being from behind Pine Curtain, you know, outside of a small town, all that kind of stuff. You end up in Waxahachie, a really fast-growing uh, suburban community, you know, just, you know, really important population center, all that kind of stuff. And you're at First Baptist Church, Waxahachie, and how strange it seems to you that you ended up there. So there are, there are things outside of what you would expect to happen because of who you are. There are also things in your affinities, the things you're attracted to, the fact that you love to study, you know, Greek and the New Testament, for instance, uh, that probably do fit right into your ministry and what the Lord's done with you. I'm curious on the affinity side. What are the affinities you have that uh, have equipped you, uh, helped you be available to what the Lord wanted to do in your life? I'm curious just what, I mean, and this is just a personal question. You're like, what's most interesting to you in scripture? What's most interesting to you about ministry outside of ministry? You, minister, you, you mentioned you work out, you go to the gym. Is that something you do naturally? I'm just curious what your interests are. I hate yeah. working out. Uh, the only thing I like to do is I do like to run. So I can't run like David Hardage can run. I mean, he's like, he is the marathon king over there, but uh, I do enjoy that. It's not really something that propels me. I my, I think probably the thing that drives most of me my whole life has, has really is my origin story. It's, it's the fact that, you know, um, you know, lots to my story, but my parents were in the Worldwide Church of God. That's how they met. Ah, and so they're really the D church. You know, they left that strange, weird religious thing. I grew up as a, yeah, that's right. I grew up as a spiritual, uh, you know, gypsy. And I mean, I've been to the Pentecostal churches and all the different things. And I think I always grew up with this sincere belief in Christ and this desire to really find the truth, this lifelong quest. It's what drove me through my academic studies and my pastoring. And I also feel like I have a very, I had a real calling. Uh, I had a career path. I was going to be a computer science. Uh, I was going to be a programmer. I loved that. And then God out of nowhere uh, in the midst of a, of a college event, called me to ministry. I was where you guys are. I never thought that was going to be my life, but God just sort of gave me this clear picture in my mind of a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel, and that would I be willing to help him bring people to the cross? That was the way that that was understood to me, and so my whole life is about just trying to be faithful to that. I, I find ministry incredibly difficult. Uh, I find it super frustrating Every Sunday morning, I want to quit. You didn't ask me what I thought about on Sunday mornings. Every Sunday morning, I want to quit. And every Sunday afternoon, I want to quit. You know, it is really hard. That's why Paul, I think, says to the Galatians, don't grow weary in doing good, because in the proper time, you will reap a harvest. Uh, it's, it's not easy. Uh, it's challenging. Uh, so affinities are, I do, I absolutely love academics. I have spent I have spent so much of my time burying myself 
in Scripture and reading Scripture, and it kind of becomes the engine that drives my ministry. So. Nice. I uh, couldn't have asked for a, a more appropriate answer. I mean, in, in terms of why I ask, because your personality is different than a lot of pastors. I'm not saying, I, I didn't just say different and stop. I just, <laughs> I just said different from a lot of pastors. And I, and I am bringing it up uh, for all of our students always to be aware that, you know, affinities are important, but they don't, they don't define what God can do with you or what he's going to do with you. And the fact that he put you in ministry and every week you are sort of thinking, well, I, why am I doing this? But then also, because that's what the Lord called me to, and that the Lord is blessing you the way he is. Well, Great and I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a line of people at the end of the service, too, that come up to me and are just grateful. You know, there's, there's the a community of supporting people. So, But you only ever hear the ones that criticize you. No, I know. I, but I, and I know you would say there's, there is reward with all the, with all the trouble, but, uh, it's a real encouragement to hear from you. So y'all thank me one, uh, thank uh, Dr. Ritzmo one more time with me and, uh, thank you very much and God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great afternoon. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell College Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.